Welcome back to another Cardinals Off Day podcast. Uh, we are here. Uh, we'll be releasing this on the day the pitchers and catchers report, which uh, is always uh, an exciting day because it kind of sort of a little bit means spring training is coming, which means the baseball season is kind of sort of a little bit uh, coming. So uh, that's enough for us to get excited around here. At least speaking for me, I'm uh, Ben Godar. And uh, with me, as always, is my good friend, Ben Humphrey. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing pictures of ball players in the Florida sun. It always sort yes. of eases a little bit of the tension that builds up over the winter um, because it's like, oh, look how nice it appears to be there. Soon it'll be, yes. well, and by soon, I mean like in three months, it'll be about that nice here. And it's a good feeling. Yeah, that right. Yeah. No. Yeah. There's some seasonal benefit. I, I really enjoy that pitchers and catchers has stuck with us as a concept, even though it's of course, utterly ridiculous right now. Right. Like back in the fifties, you know, these guys might've spent the off season, like, you know, getting drunk and hunting and working part-time at a lumber yard. But uh, um, I, I, you know, seen some of these guys on Instagram and uh, Ben they're, uh, they're in the gym all year. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. And they're watching what they eat and yes. uh, are in, are, are in game shape today. Um, but yes. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm with you. I really enjoy the tradition and uh, I, I will probably remember until I die because I laughed out loud when I when I read the article about uh, after they traded for Nolan Arenado and he was like, oh, I'm going to get there early and I'm going to make a good impression. And he uh -huh. showed up at like, I can't remember what time it was, but it was like seven in the morning. And then Yadier Molina was out on the field and had been working out for two hours or something like right. that. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yes. Um, and I, I enjoy those little uh, anecdotes too about like spring camp, you know, and, and just kind of everyone's there together and it, and it makes for some, some good uh, stories as well. And so like you, Ben, I'm, I'm very happy uh, that we have once again reached this point in the baseball calendar and excited for the season to come. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we thought uh, we would use this as an opportunity to do kind of a, a mailbag episode here um, to talk about uh, some of the maybe developments that have happened this offseason, as well as some things as we prepare for the season. Uh, of course, uh, as per the name of this podcast, once the season starts, we'll be with you every off day. But uh, here in the offseason, we're a little bit... Uh, uh, you know, a little bit more periodic with it. Uh, but without further ado, Ben, uh, why don't we jump right in? And our first question um, comes from uh, Daniel Shoptaw, C70, uh, friend of the pod. And he says, uh, I want to ask how these bums think they can get away with doing just two episodes in the offseason. Um, <laughs> talk about the life, man. And uh, Daniel, we understand, but not all of us can be the blog father, right? Uh, or the pod father. So, uh, I don't think anyone puts in the work that Daniel does. And uh, so uh, I will uh, I will own our more relaxed schedule here for sure. Uh, would like their thoughts on not only the bullpen arms, but how they were acquired. So uh, Ben, uh, do you want to address either, either the bullpen arms or our, uh, our general work schedule compared to Daniel's? Uh, well, you know, we talked about that Matt Carpenter emergency pod. Um, you know, right. when they, when <laughs> yeah. they signed the 26th man, um, who just pretty expressly is just an emotional support player for the manager and their two corner infield stars <laughs> who can't be bothered to lead or contribute to a positive clubhouse culture. So uh, hopefully uh, Matt Carpenter is successful as the player coach in charge of vibes. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we also... Um, you know, some of, some of these other moves uh, with the trades. And I, I think longtime listeners know what our feeling is towards relievers. And, and Ben, this is, this is your, uh, you have articulated our philosophy and, um, and they're basically cattle, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yes, yes. They are. Yes. Should be acquired like, and treated like, and disposed of uh, as such. Um, one of the, uh, interesting things about the current crop of them, uh, I think, is that they have all 
been pretty well in line with how we feel you go about constructing a bullpen. And that is you don't want to spend uh, even, I don't want to say a lot because no reliever, you know, like this side of like Josh Hader costs a lot. Right. Like, right. And so, um, you know, I don't want to say a lot, but, but you don't want to be, let's say you don't want to be paying, you know, more than like $10 million for, a reliever who is not like bar none top tier reliever, right? Like, and even then it's, it's a, it's, it's a tricky endeavor. And so, Mm -hmm. and the reason being, there's a whole lot of fluctuation in baseball player performance from year to year. And that's even just like for hitters and starting pitchers and hitters and starting pitchers do what they do a whole heck of a lot more than relievers. And so, yeah, you know, when you're, when you're looking at these guys who've made 50, 60, 70 appearances in a season and probably in all likelihood have thrown under 100 innings, it's very difficult to get your arms around what their true talent is. And it's also very speculative that that true talent will come through in the coming season and you will get mm-hmm. that type of performance. And so uh, when we say they have acquired these relievers in line with how we think relievers should be acquired, that's because they haven't gone out and gotten many guys that you recognize their name and they have a cost because they have a name brand to them. And, you know, the Cardinals as a team have a poor track record of this in recent years. Um, But a lot of teams do, you know, you sign relievers and they don't do what you want them to do. And so, I am very much in line with uh, I am in line with the thought process that the front office has seemingly used in acquiring these relievers. And, you know, Ben, an interesting dynamic to this series of acquisitions, though, is a lot of them are players who Haim Bloom seems like he would be pretty familiar with. So, yeah. Uh, I, I thought that was an interesting dynamic kind of around all of this. Yeah. And we, we have a question later on that it gets a little more into that, but, but yeah, um, obviously uh, what Kittredge was acquired by a trade with uh, Tampa Bay for Richie Palacios. And then you had the trade uh, for the Tyler O'Neill trade with the Red Sox, um, you know, who brought in uh, Nick Robertson and uh, uh, Victor Santos, who's a, uh, more a minor leaguer and I, I think may potentially still start, but you know what? I don't know. And then of course, Middleton, um, just to say his name is I think the other most significant um, guy that they've acquired. And Ben, I want you to know that I wrote all their names down before we started recording because <laughs> they're just not that important to me. Um, you know, these are all guys, these are all guys who they've, uh, uh, you know, like you said, um, they've, they've spent uh, little money on. And uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, some of these guys are going to perform well, and we'll find them in a significant role in the bullpen for, you know, some most of the season. And some of them are just going to disappear. And, and that's fine because when you're not paying Andrew Miller money, um, you, you can uh, you can be interchangeable with that. You know, of course, uh, bullpen's also a great spot for um, all of the uh formerly promising starters in your system who are now failed starters, uh, you know, to potentially find a role as well. So, um, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, in answer to the question, uh, feeling really good about both these particular uh, guys uh, and how they were acquired. Yeah. And now it's just a question of, of what order they cycle through them. Like who gets that first chance to prove they're a major league reliever who can, you know, who Ali Marmol can give a role to, um, throughout the season. And, you know, I, I think the guys yeah. that they have acquired are going to get first crack at it because they're relievers. And I think a lot of the starters that the organization has failed to develop are going to probably be starting in AAA um, yeah. as depth uh, for the current rotation and the current bullpen. And I'm okay with that. Um, yep. I, I think it's a, it's a good way to structure things and, you know, in, in some of the more successful seasons uh, in the Mosaic era, that is how it's worked. And then they've gone in and they've they've dipped into that AAA rotation for relievers. Lance Lynn in yep. 2011 was called up in a role like that. You know, Carlos yep. Martinez was. 
Trevor Rosenthal was a was starting in the minors when they they called him up and and turned him into a reliever and you know obviously he stayed a reliever but you know those those were all in season moves that they made because the more established relievers who they gave the first shot to didn't pan out and so um, I'm I think that is the right way to construct the bullpen and I'm I'm glad to see the front office going about it that way this year. And I wouldn't be surprised or sad if they maybe even added another one just because the market seems to kind of be shaking out a little bit, but there might be, you know, there's been some talk this off season about the financial limitations for the club. And so when I say this, you know, I say this with that in mind where there could be a, a reliever they like who falls in price to the point where they feel comfortable bringing them on, you know, once campus started or, or, uh, you know, here in the days ahead. Yep. So, yep. Um, I, I, and I think that's a wise approach as well. Yep. Agreed. All right. And, um, of course I, I have two electronic devices here, Ben, and, and one of them, uh, went into sleep while we were talking, uh, oh. but now <laughs> back up and, uh, Yamez Duckin, uh, asks with a tough March, April schedule, are you worried that the front office will regret passing on another top starter to pair with Gray? Mosaloc says that he's hoping to save some dry powder for the deadline, but could his risk aversion actually be a gamble? What do you think, Ben? Well, um, I guess two parts to this question um, to me. First off, um, and I, I'll be honest, I haven't looked real specifically at the March-April schedule, but uh, back when I was writing for Viva Albertos, I did write a few pieces kind of like sort of strength of schedule related. And, you know, it's never a huge um, factor. Just, you know, baseball teams are all close enough in ability and everything that um, it doesn't shake out as much as you might think it does. So I certainly uh, believe the questioner that their March-April schedule is is tough, but I don't think that will demonstrably like warp the their performance or our perception of them um you know for the second part of the question as far as not acquiring another uh, top starter uh, other than sunny gray uh, at least to this point you know ben one of my resolutions for this season is to not get frustrated with the cardinals being the cardinals and <laughs> and so like I, I and I because I feel like this is where so much of our kind of energy and discourse and I don't just mean you and I I mean like collectively Cardinals Nation goes right is uh, you know wishing that the Cardinals were the Dodgers or were the Mets or were you know like pick any other team you know or even like the Rays of course who aren't a big spending team but have a very different kind of philosophy and approach. And, you know, the thing is that the Cardinals are the Cardinals. And so I think, yes, we can absolutely, you know, talk about the ways we wish they would be better or wouldn't they try this. But at the same time, I think this is exactly what they were always going to do. <laughs> and really in the universe of what I think was reasonable for them to do this offseason, I'm, I'm actually reasonably happy with it. I think Gray is a, is a uh, you know, pretty high quality guy. So they definitely added kind of that top of the rotation guy, um, you know, and uh, then they, you know, they added uh, kind of, uh, you know, classic innings eaters to the back end of the rotation who may or may not be a thing in uh, 2024, uh, but the organization still thinks they do. So, you know, will they, you know, will, will they regret it? Um, I mean, you know, possibly, but I, I think even if they do, then in 2025, they're going to do exactly the same thing because that's who the Cardinals are. What do you think? I mean, I think if they're going to regret it, it's going to be in July or August, September. Um, yeah, I don't think I don't think early in the year, you know, they're on the West Coast to start things off. West Coast road trips are never fun. I yeah. have also never been someone who thought the Cardinals performance on a West Coast road trip tells us much, you know, just mm -hmm. like, you know, any other team you know, kind of from the Midwest East, it's, it's not fun uh, to do that. Yeah. And they, and you're more likely to lose a road series than a home series and all those types of things. And, and it all kind of, the strength of schedule will balance out with the NL central, right? right? Like it is right. a very, right. very unimpressive division. And so this team like last year and the year before feels built to compete in and win the NL Central. Yes. 
you know, the the owners and the players have since made the postseason format such that it reinforces the Cardinals approach because there are more wildcard slots. And so, yes. you know, that even they even have a larger safety net to catch them if they come up short in the NL Central. Although I think this year the second place team in the NL Central is going to have a probably not a very good record. So it remains yeah. to be seen what that picture will be like. And it, but to the greater question about regretting not have having more better pitchers, I mean, we we've kind of been a broken record over the last couple of years. We, you know, I think somewhat infamously now referred to Matt's as Dr. Thunder to uh, Stroman's Dr. Pepper. And the Cardinals, uh-huh. of course, went for the the generic solution and it has played out like you would probably expect it to. Um, and so I think, I think that they need more high quality starting pitching innings. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would be very surprised, as you said, even going into next year, if they added that, like going into the season. Now, that being said, with the way that this offseason has played out, you know, and like Blake Snell is still available as we're right. recording this. Yeah, um, and we're recording a couple of days before we post it. So, Ben, he could be a Cardinal by the time people are listening yeah. to this. <laughs> and But, you know, like the Orioles went and got Burns. The Dodgers got Glasnow yeah. and Yamamoto. And, yeah. you know, you just kind of see the way that all this is playing out. Like the longer or the way that this offseason has played out, the more likely I feel like it is that Dylan Cease maybe winds up a St. Louis Cardinal. Um, yeah. Maybe not. He's, he's, he's the one out there on the board that would really yeah. change the, uh, change the shape of what this rotation is that I think is plausible again in the universe where the Cardinals are the Cardinals. <laughs> yes. And he's under control next season as well. And so yeah. when you, when you look at that, I, you know, it seems as if he will be available at the trade deadline because they had the White Sox have not traded him yet. Um, and so to me, he is the type of guy you go out and you get if you have decided Steven Matz is no longer a starter or Miles Michaelis is no longer a starter for you, or yeah, Lance Lynn is not, you know. Um, yeah, you know, and with Gibbs with those guys, you know, I with Michaelis and Matt's they're both under contract for 2025. So maybe Matt's goes into the bullpen or something. And I don't know what you do with Michaelis, but like Cease feels like the guy that they would, that they might go out and acquire when something goes wrong with the current rotation. And so when I say they might come to regret it in like July and August, that's really, you know, if you have a problem in the rotation and you're trying to limp, to the trade deadline and bolster the rotation um, or something goes wrong, you know, after the trade deadline, then you're in real trouble because yeah. you're, you're scrambling to fill innings without being able to go and trade someone and trade for someone. And so um, I, I think that they could live, they very well could live to regret it, but this is the St. Louis Cardinals. This is what they do. And they are playing in the NL central and it's an approach that has been pretty successful over the years. Uh, in that division and in being competitive enough to sell 3 million tickets and, and keep the money flowing into the wallet. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and this next question to me gets at, I think the more interesting question about how they might actually make like long-term substantial changes. Um, and, and this question comes from a uh, Chappie on a uh, Cardinals discord. Now, is that the, is that the robot from the, uh, the movie, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, no, no. yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you, Chappie. Glad to, glad you're a listener. Um, uh, uh, the question is, what's the plan for the future of the pitching staff? Uh, this offseason's moves felt like a stopgap for a year, and then we have all the same issues next offseason. Um, so, Ben, what do you think their long-term plan is? Well, it sounds like their pitching lab and spring training facility and everything that they've been talking about has been delayed even further um, down there in Jupiter. 
So, I, you know, in terms of bringing player development and their overall approach to pitching into the, the 21st century, it seems like they're still lagging behind. And, um, and Ben, I just want I just want to interrupt and say the whole term pitching lab has just really become a joke at this point. Yeah, it's like yeah, back it's when better. it's like it's like it's like, you know, 10 or whatever years ago when people would talk about. Uh, analytics and like, does this team use analytics? Uh, but like already it was just that, like, th- that's not really a thing. That's just how teams operate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was no longer like, like it, it, at one point for a very brief time, it was a meaningful way to sort teams that were on board uh, and teams that weren't. And for a very brief time, pitching lab was kind of the same thing, but now it's just what part of pitching development is. And so when we say they, they, their pitching lab isn't up and running, it's because their pitching development is garbage is what we're really saying. It's like continuing to refer to touch phones that have internet capabilities as smartphones. They're just yeah. phones. That's, that's that's what everyone uses now. They're just phones. Uh, I do call. I do say, "Here's my number for my cell." Occasionally, which I feel like is yeah. is weird and dated, but that's that's a that's an aside. That just shows our age. It um, does. It does. Or maybe we should still use Pitching Lab. Um, but call it, me but on my rotary dial home phone. Yeah. No, go yes. Ahead. Yeah. Right. Um, but like in, in terms of what their plans are, I, I just, I don't really see it <laughs> and I don't really have much yeah. confidence in John Mosellock, Michael Gersh and Randy Flores, the people who got us where we are uh, right. to fix things. Um, I, I think yeah. right now when you, when you look at what they have done, Tink Hence is, you know, they somehow struck gold there just in terms of stuff. You know, like he he has so much stuff. It doesn't matter what your philosophy is. He's good. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a it's a question of health and whether or not they can develop him into like a Blake Snell five innings, a start type of guy. Right. Um, Right. And then you've got, uh, you know, kind of this crop of of pitchers that they traded for. Um, And then Gordon Rosefo, in my opinion. And I think that they're really hoping that one of those guys takes a step forward this year and shows that he is the guy who's going to be the fifth starter who's in a quote-unquote competition in case someone gets hurt. So everyone else is still developing as a starter. Yeah. And I I think that is what they are hoping for. I I agree. And and I I agree with everything you said, Ben. I I think that there was – a market shift, you know, kind of mid-season last year with those trades specifically. And you've got, you know, you know, Takoa Roby is really the one that like has the highest pedigree of all of them. But, you know, Sam Roberson and all these other kind of guys they acquired. Now, are those guys like great prospects? No, they're not. But they weren't trade. I mean, look at what they were giving up, right? So, yeah. like, I, I think I think they got kind of the best they could. And hopefully that's like a hint of a direction towards where they're going. And hopefully it's, kind of filling in at least a little bit of talent in that kind of upper minors level, which, which frankly, I, I mean, I don't believe in any of those guys, McGreevy, Graceffo, uh, on the, uh, Jerpy. I don't believe in any of those guys at all. And so these guys at least might be, you know, one or two of these guys you hope is a plausible enough, like kind of fourth or fifth starter as kind of a stopgap. But yeah, the real way that this, the, 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 what the plan for this future pitching staff needs to be is they need development. Um, and sure, drafting can be an issue there too. They have not drafted pitching well either for many years now. So c- certainly, if they if they draft some talent, that could make a big difference. But we're, you know, we're, we're all talking really about like frontline starting pitching, and those guys almost exclusively are guys that come out of high school, right? Or they're very young. They're not like you know college seniors by any means. So even if you draft some some you know guys of that pedigree they're still four years away. So, um, but I think the bigger thing is just, you know, they, they need to just develop, have guys develop beyond, you know, what their maybe initial expectations are, right? They need guys to exceed expectations. And, you know, they still do this quite well on the position player side, especially given historically where they've drafted, right? And, you know, they, they really do turn out uh, better results than, you know, the kind of draft pick, uh, would suggest consistently on the position player side, it's the exact opposite on the pitching side. So that to me is the thing that um, they, they just, they have to make whatever kind of internal, you know, changes um, 
I would say wholesale changes, it would appear, um, you know, so that, um, you know, there's some better draft material coming in, but more important than that, they're, they're just, they're developing and they're, they're helping guys achieve more than what it looks like they're worth at the point where they come into the system. Oh, absolutely. And, and that, that's going to be going into next season, but I think it's maybe even more, uh, 2026. And yeah. I think that Mosaic very clearly is hoping that they have a solution for the rotation next year in either Gibson or Lynn. Both of them have club options for next year. Yeah. And so I think the Cardinals are, are hoping that these, these contracts they've given those two pitchers, one of them works out and they want one of those guys back next year. And yes. And so then they aren't in the position of having to go out and bid for free agents. You know, it's a, uh, yeah. And, and it's yeah, cost certainty and, and all those things. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I think those guys and, and some of these, you know, trade acquisitions and just upper minors guys that they do have, I think it's reasonable to think that these guys could be kind of a band aid for one to two years here for them. But the problem is, they don't have the material coming in after the Band-Aid yet either. <laughs> so right. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hope they acquire that. Yeah, f definitely fingers crossed on that front. Um, moving on uh, to the overall roster, uh, Bill Dozier on Twitter asks, how many first base DH guys do we need? <laughs> well, um, apparently that number is infinite. And uh, then I also, I went to the roster page just to make sure I had kept track of all of these guys, frankly. Um, so, and, and please tell me if I'm forgetting anybody, but by my count, um, and these are, these are all players that are on the 40 man roster right now. Uh, so this off season, they of course acquired Matt Carpenter. We know that um, also Alfonso Rivas and Jared Young, right. Uh, Luke and Baker, right. Is, is still there as well as kind of a surplus first baseman guy. And then on top of that, granted, you've got Goldie, who's obviously the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, starter there at first base. But really, you've also got Jordan Walker and Nolan Gorman, who are guys who, while they haven't played first base, that's an incredibly reasonable place for them to, you know, be moved to or eventually land. So, um, so that's, that's seven guys then. Um, five of them are just pretty much bona fide first base or DH types. You know, and then you've got Walker and Gorman who are, uh, you know, first basemen that are currently standing at a different position on the field. Yeah, it's it's really kind of stupefying. Like, how wh yeah. what are they doing here? Because, like, even looking at it, like, most of these guys, there's no reason to believe they're any better than Luke and Baker. You know what I mean? And right. where is he? Right. In that right. Like, yeah. Um, it's it's very weird, especially from an organization that not too long ago was touting versatility among players. Yes, <laughs> and now they yeah. have guys who don't have defensive positions um, that they've they've added to the roster at at a pretty high rate. Um, I I did see I I think it was Jeff Jones uh, from the uh, there on Twitter, you know, said something about how um, or maybe it was in. It was in an article on STL today, but uh, that Marmal last year was talking about how the organization needed to win more in the minors. And I was kind of thinking to myself, like, oh, the, the guy who has coached the Cardinals to their worst season in 30 years is talking about how the, the minor league teams need to win more. Like, well, we just we just we just named quite a few minor league players, frankly. Exactly, so, like. <laughs> and and no one uh, no one needs to sell you and I on the value of, um, or I should say, you and me on the value of a good hitting first baseman, a quadruple A first baseman. They're they're really great in the International League and the Pacific Coast League. Really great to have. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. help your team's prospects, but like, you know. Beyond that, I, I just don't see the point. And, and even if that is the point to, to help the high minors teams be more competitive, why do you need so many of them? It, it's yeah. just really weird. It is. And I mean, 
uh, uh, of course they're each discrete like moves that come in right and it's not like these were big signings or anything now the carpenter one you know you already got you know is you know he may just be the uh uh you know chief officer of vibes in the clubhouse but also i think with carpenter we have to keep in mind that the Braves are paying his real salary and the Cardinals are paying him $700,000. So I am not at all optimistic about Matt Carpenter, but that said, you know, since he's left the Cardinals, he's done this weird, like one good season, one bad season thing, you know, from a point that he already looked washed. So, you know, there, you got a chance at something there, but regardless, you know, you are bringing in like a a, a legend of your team for $700,000, which is nothing. Um, You know, and some of these other guys, you know, Rivas, Young, Baker, right. I mean, these guys were acquired at a certain point, but yeah, they do. They end up uh, passing through waivers and going down to Memphis. You know, do they end up getting, uh, you know, as a, an add-on and some trade for a, you know, minor league relief pitcher? Uh, you know, what have you? Probably. So, it's a little glaring right now, but I have a feeling that when we record our uh, preseason pod, we are not going to have this same list of names that we all feel like are. Uh, realistic options on the major league roster. Um, but, uh, you know, time, time will tell. I would have, uh, uh, I would have said the same thing about, uh, oh my gosh, who was the job? I've already forgot his name, Ben. Who was the jobber that was with the team all season last year? The uh, 30 year old modern. Uh, modern, modern Taylor modern. I would have said the same thing about Taylor modern on, uh, uh, on Valentine's day of last year. And uh, he ended up getting, I believe uh, 600 plate appearances last year with the Cardinals if memory serves. So anyway, uh <laughs> those are those are kind of thoughts on those guys uh, uh one other roster question we have here from rich g also on the cardinals uh discord uh he says if the cubs make a big move or two will the front office feel the pressure to make another move for uh remaking top tier starting pitcher or stand pat with their dry powder i do appreciate this is our second question that used the phrase dry powder <laughs> well, a lot of good most speak on here uh, uh, amongst the questions yeah, and, and this one even uses the quotation marks uh, yes. <laughs> you know, around dry powder uh, to let us know I am using John Mosellock's uh, terminology here. Um, I don't think that the Cardinals uh, really paid much, uh, if any, attention to what the Cubs did uh, or are going to do um, mm-hmm. because they were so bad and things went so wrong this last off season, I think that they just went out and they have identified what they feel they need to compete and they've Mm -hmm. gone out and to their credit, they have gotten it. I mean, they were quite aggressive with Gibson and Lynn and, and they were also aggressive with Sonny Gray. And then that allowed them to be a little bit more methodical with the bullpen. And Mm -hmm. that approach as the market has developed, I think, has been proven pretty wise because when you look at, you know, even when you look at like Jack Flaherty's contract, right? Like mm-hmm. you have to feel pretty good that about Kyle Gibson on the deal that they have him on, you know, just kind of like looking yeah. around at what other starting pitchers are going for. And yep. so um, I, I think that they were very focused on themselves um, and not so interested in what the Cubs are doing and, you know, the the Cubs, I, I think Bellinger is probably their primary focus this offseason. And knowing that mm-hmm. he is a Boris client, you know, you you would be wise to not really structure your offseason around whether or not the Cubs are able to sign him because Boris clients often sign late. And uh, as we record this, Bellinger remains a free agent. So, yeah, uh, I, I think they did it right. And I don't think the moves now by the Cubs will cause them to dip into their dry powder. If it makes the Cubs competitive and we're near the trade deadline and they're in a division race with the Cubs, I think then obviously they're going to dip their dry powder and improve the club. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I'm with you. Bellinger, I think is the, you know, big name that's out there that you, you would most likely see the Cubs signing, but Really, I don't feel like that even moves the needle significantly. So I think for you know to really feel like the Cubs are could become a threat, you're almost in a thought exercise where you have to expect them to sign like every high value free agent that's still out there, and that's just not particularly realistic. So I uh, yeah, I don't I don't see. I mean, I, I think you know 
and I, I know I just saw uh, today uh, uh, Dan Zaborski, friend of the pod, uh, <laughs> posted his uh, kind of updated going into spring training um, uh, uh, projections, uh, you know, win loss and playoff projections. And, you know, in the central, he still has the Cardinals at the top with like 83 wins. And then uh, the, you know, the Brewers, the Cubs, uh, you know, pretty close to that and, and the Reds and then even the Pirates, not all that far behind. And I think that's the cluster that it's just, we're, we're going to be dealing with this season. Uh, looking to the future, Greg Maturin asks, between all the one-year deals and the decision not to extend Goldie before the season starts, the team had set themselves up to sell if the season implodes again. At what point do they pull the cord? Uh, if they're plus or minus a game or two from 500 at the deadline, to expand or clarify a little, if they're on track to improve but still miss the playoffs, win 81 games, say, Will the front office sell at the deadline? Should they? Well, I'm going to go back to my earlier point about the Cardinals being the Cardinals. And I think their uh, marching orders remain to, you know, feel the competitive team every year. And so uh, it's, I, I, I really see it as being unlikely that the Cardinals have like a major sell-off, right? Um, or go into rebuilding mode. I, I just, um, until we see a, a, a wholesale change of philosophy, that that's what we can't expect. So, um, you know, that said, I think that there is are some interesting questions here. Um, you know, if we approach the trade deadline and they're, you know, and they're kind of where they were last year or, or you know, otherwise just kind of, you know, out of it or floundering, um, I think we could see some, see them sell like they did last year, my guess is it would be kind of similar to last year. It would be, uh, you know, may, more or less moving some not particularly valuable assets that they don't plan to hang on to. Uh, you know, Goldie is a really interesting question. You and I have really talked about uh, it, it would make a lot of sense for the team to trade him, particularly with all of the other potential uh, players that they could move into first base there. Um, but again, knowing how Bill DeWitt, you know, values his, you know, kind of baseball card players. And we say that somewhat derisively, but they do take a lot of pride in, in, you know, essentially always having a hall of fame player on the team. And I think we sometimes take that for granted because, um, you know, even in bad seasons, the, the Cardinals have almost always given us a, a, a great player to watch do their work. And if you, you know, look at other teams in the league, or, or if you're ever trying to do a, you know, immaculate grid and it's like a, you know, uh, like, you know, Rangers, uh, Mariners Square or something. You're like, oh, my God, I have no idea. Right. There's there's plenty of teams that historically have not done that. So um, I guess which is all to say my expectation is if they sell, it will be in the kind of small way that they did last year. Um, I think Goldie is a very interesting name. And, and if they wanted to change what they do a little bit, I think it could still potentially make sense to sell him in that situation. But I don't think it's likely. Yeah, and I I think yes, they are positioned to pivot uh, away from the current roster construction, um, but I think that that positioning is has as much to do with the question marks that were facing Diamond Sports and BS Midwest, yeah. and and streaming rights and all of these broadcast revenue streams that you know that were pretty much up in the air uh, going into yeah. the offseason and so like even gray's contract is you know pretty backloaded and so mm -hmm. i i think that they were pre prepared to you know take a revenue hit and adjust their spending on major league ball players accordingly um yeah and now it looks like maybe they want they won't have to do that and so i mean it remains to be seen um you know, how all that ultimately is finalized. But right now it looks like Diamond has a proposal to move forward as an entity that is broadcasting Major League Baseball and the St. Louis Cardinals. So yeah. Uh, now how much the Cardinals are going to get for that, you know, that might be another question we'll see. But um, I, I don't think that the roster this year and the decision with Goldschmidt is so much to do with, we need to see if we're winning again, as we need to see how much television money we're going to have. 
Yes. Yes. Well, and, and the other point I wanted to make, Ben, it actually kind of rolls into our next question. So I'm going I'm to read that question, then I'm going to kind of get to this point. This is from um, uh, from Ben uh, uh, on Twitter, um, uh, and he says, "Hi, Ben's another Ben here, and we always welcome Ben. There's just not enough Bens that write about and talk about the Cardinals. I think we can all agree on that." Um, welcome, Ben. Uh, what are your thoughts on Heim Bloom? Is he the obvious successor to Moseliak? The Cardinals actually getting outside perspective and changing their approach. Uh, or will they trade Jordan Walker to the Dodgers in a few years? And I, the reason I think this kind of connects back to the last question um, about what they might do, you know, midseason or things like that is, first off, I think it seems pretty clear that Heim Bloom is the the most successor. Um, when we look historically at how the team has operated, you know, Bill DeWitt really believes in bringing people into the organization before kind of, you know, promoting them up. You know, and that's true, of course, with players. We know how much they love to even, a, a you know, like a Matt Holiday or these kind of guys, they really like to acquire or Goldschmidt even, right? They like to acquire these guys by a trade and then extend them. So they kind of, you know, there's a little bit of integration there, but we've seen it in the front office um, before as well. You know, of course, Mo was, was in place. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, this, this is how he likes to do succession. So I think that's happening here. And I also think in terms of not maybe not seeing a Goldschmidt extension or perhaps some other decisions they're making, it looks to me like um, they're kind of intentionally not trying to tee up the next regime, which I presume will be a Heim Bloom regime, with a bunch of like legacy extensions for aging players. So that that uh, person really does have a, a pretty good amount of freedom to to remake the team. Um, so that's that's kind of my take on what they're what they're doing here, and I think overall. Uh, making the assumption that I'm right about that, that seems like they're moving in a positive direction to me. What, what do you think, Ben? Uh, I, I think you make very good points. Um, the reference to Jordan Walker is what I will pick up on here. I, and you, you and I have been saying, you know, you have to look at just playing him at first base, you know, mm-hmm. at, at some point in time, because he was terrible in the outfield. And yeah, it, he seemed to improve a little bit. But is is an improved Jordan Walker in the outfield an acceptable major league outfielder, let alone an acceptable major league outfielder uh, on a team that doesn't strike guys out? Because even mm-hmm. though the Cardinals improved a little bit in this area, they are still not a team that strikes a lot of guys out. So there's going to be balls in play. And yeah. those balls in play tend to find the guys who aren't very good fielders, uh, you know, a few times each week. And so... You know, I, I think that what we may actually be looking at here is, um, you know, what is Jordan Walker's future and do we want Paul Goldschmidt to interfere with it, especially since we have Wilson Contreras, who's probably going to be getting more time at DH, and we've got Nolan Gorman, who's going to be getting, uh, with his back, perhaps more time at DH. And so I, I think this could just be a very pragmatic look at, we only have so many plate appearances and do we want a 40-year-old first baseman slash DH right. Right. when we have these other guys who can who can take that position, even though we like those legacy players who go into the Hall of Fame as St. Louis Cardinals? And so uh, with respect to Bloom, that, that would hem Bloom in. But let me tell you, you know, if, if Jordan Walker puts up a season where he's hitting 30%, 40% above league average, uh, I, I think there's going to be, a, a, you know, that's not a legacy extension, but ownership is going to engage in those extension talks and they're going to try yeah. to lock him in for 10 years, you know, maybe even yes. longer with, with club options. And if Walker gives them that reason, the reason to do that, I think a, a Goldschmidt extension becomes less likely, but, um, yeah. but who, but that all of this, of course, remains to be seen, and and I'm uh, I'm I'm very interested to see how it all plays out this year because there's there's more palace intrigue than there usually is. <laughs> That's <laughs> there, for sure. there there is, but I think um, you know, looking ahead at a potential next front office regime, it's important to remember that whoever they bring in in that top executive position is still going to be playing Dewitt ball. 
So they are going yeah. to have to color inside the lines that Bill DeWitt sets. Now, I'm not a Heimblum expert, but uh, you know he he kind of you know worked his way up the up the chain in Tampa Bay under Andrew Friedman. You know, Friedman, of course, is the absolute gold standard in <laughs> you know in front offices right now, and anyone that's part of that Andrew Friedman tree is is highly highly desirable. You know, and then in Boston, you know he they, he took them to an uh, uh, NL, or uh, ALCS. Um, but then was in this weird position with, you know, the owners, you know, buying soccer teams and all kinds of other stuff. So, you know, had to dump Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts. And so, you know, ultimately some of his teams that were less successful, but that really looks to me like more of a reflection again on just, this is the direction ownership wanted to go. So um, I'm pretty optimistic that he could be a very good, uh, you know, very good fit in St. Louis um, if he does ascend to that position. Yeah. And, and you're, you're 100% right. I've, I've seen a lot of people talking about Mookie Betts and Bloom. Mookie Betts is an ownership decision. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is the amount of money it was going to take to keep Mookie Betts. That's not, that's not management. That's ownership. Right. You know, you, you have to go get that approval and ownership may even be involved in the negotiations or, or being the, the point person in those negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as they get close to the, the finish line on, on dollars. And so, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, re- I remember somewhat infamously Mosellock angered Pujols and his agent and DeWitt, uh, wound up being the point person in those negotiations b- before the Cardinals got outbid by the angels. And, you know, then the flip side of it, Boris angered DeWitt and then uh, in the holiday negotiations. <laughs> so then Moselock was point person. So it's, uh, you know, ownership is involved in that. And as you say, you have to color inside the lines. You can't do something that your owners won't allow you to do. And uh-huh. I, I think in that regard, I think that Bloom's approach in Boston, they have a very highly uh, rated farm system now. And he colored within the lines. And so when you look at that, he certainly seems like he would be the type of executive that Bill DeWitt would like to work with. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yep, 100%. Um, Moving on uh, to kind of a grab bag of various topics. DeWallet Inspector asks, who's the early favorite on the 40-man roster to be the Ty Wigginton Memorial Fan Base Whipping Boy? a spot most recently occupied by Taylor Motter, whose name Ben forgot uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, <laughs> which, which I'm both which I'm both ashamed of and not at all ashamed of, by the way. <laughs> now that Jake Woodford has moved on, who is the team's current platonic ideal of a jobber, and why is it Alfonso Rivas? <laughs> well, uh, solid nomination to Wallet Inspector with Alfonso Rivas. Um and, uh, you know, we got last at the end of the season last year, we did do our uh, uh, jobber of the year uh, lists. We, and we got a lot of positive feedback on that, Ben. Folks have asked us to bring that back, which I'm all I'm all for bringing back things that listeners enjoy. I have to say, um, I hope the team is so good <laughs> that we don't have such an enormous number of jobbers to choose from in future years. But I digress. Um, all right. So who is going to be the the jobber of the year, the Ty Wigington Memorial fan base whipping boy. Here's my thoughts, Ben. Um, I, I hate to say it. I hate to say it, but I think Matt Carpenter is positioned um, to, you know, to be this guy. It, it pained me his last couple of years, you know, especially with that last extension the team gave him, which they really ought not to have done. But he really became a whipping boy for the fan base then, which, you know, again, I mean, this is, this is going to be a red jacket guy. So, like, that was really kind of distasteful to me. That said, he was not good in those last couple of years in St. Louis. He's been extremely erratic since then. And the one reason that I would elevate him now, uh, the wallet inspector mentioned Rivas, right? And we went through the just that whole list of, you know, surplus first baseman earlier, your Jared Youngs, your Luke and Bakers at all. Um, right. Uh, but these... Um, these guys, uh, I think, are more likely to be disposed of, whereas Carpenter I see sticking around. So I think Carpenter could could stay in that role. Um, on the pitching side, I think it's kind of one of these uh, guys who maybe is a, a young, uh, 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 not a... Not a 
free agent that they brought in necessarily, but kind of a middle inning guy who, um, you know, could potentially move into the rotation and just basically get a lot of innings and be bad. And the, the two names that I have there are uh, Andre Pellante and Drew Rahm. So I think those are my three nominations, Ben. Matt Carpenter, Andre Pellante, or Drew Rahm. Uh, what do you think? I Matt Carpenter, I, I think, is a is the position player candidate number one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you look at that roster – you don't really see anyone else who feels like a candidate right now. And, you know, again, uh, in early February of last year, Taylor Motter was not a name on the tip of any of our tongues either. And look how that played out. Um, Right. So, I mean, I mean, I think Matt Carpenter is it, you know, he was not good last year. He was expressly brought in, not as a player, right? Like not for his skill on the field. He was brought in because, uh, you know, the manager and your two $30 million a year corner infielders, you know, aren't leaders, right? Like, and so we don't know what he brings to the club. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and it's not quantif- it's not going to be quantifiable. And so I, I just feel like he is set up to be, he's, his, his role as a player is already going to very closely resemble Ty Wigginson's, but then he was not even brought in with an ostensible role. He's brought in to right. be the, the vibes guy. Yeah. And so I, I just feel like he has been set up by Marmol and Mosaic to be the, the Ty Wigginton uh, jobber of the year uh, for this year as a position player. Um, on the pitching side, I like where you're going with it, Ben, but I'm going to say uh, my top two candidates are Miles Michaelis and Steven Matz. Um, mm. I have no yeah. inside knowledge, but I feel like these two weasels uh, were the ones who knifed Wilson Contreras. And then because Ali Marmol is not a leader and can't establish a clubhouse culture, you know, he, he went out and did their bidding and tried to humiliate him. And then they both weren't very good. And they had to take Matt's out of the rotation, put him in the bullpen. He found his stuff and he pitched better down the stretch. But, you know, does anyone believe that that pitcher is the one who's going to show up once the games start, uh, you know, here early in the season? So I think, I think these two, they're not good enough for their salaries. They're coming off of lackluster seasons. They're also apparently not the greatest of teammates. And so um, I feel like they're, they're set up to be, you know, maybe the, the Brooklyn brawler of the, of the pitching staff this year. Well, yeah. And I mean, the, the other thing that they have, you know, again, as with Carpenter is they seem unlikely to be scuttled off into another you know, kind of lesser role and certainly not sent to the minors or anything like that. So, um, so that, that always is something as well. I mean, there's, they'll have plenty of bad players or players who perform badly while they're with the team throughout the year, but the ones that, you know, get a little bit of a shot and then they move on from, they don't really stick in our craw the way that, uh, the way that a, a classic uh, Taylor Motter or a Jake Woodford will. Right. Right. And, and they make enough money where it's hard not to notice, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're bad yeah. and you make this much yes. money, which was Carpenter's problem at the end of his initial run with the Cardinals, where it's like, you're making all this money and you're terrible. And, yeah. and that tends to, to drive up the animosity uh, amongst fans. And so that is also why I'm choosing them because they're going to get a lot of opportunities to job because of how much money they're guaranteed. Yep. Yep. I think so. Um, Alex Chrisafuli, a friend of the pod, uh, asks the other day on my Netflix menu, there was a preview for a movie called Arkansas, which I had previously never heard of before. And the customary snippet that plays while highlighting something on Netflix, a very good feature, I must say, showed Vince Vaughn talking to someone while wearing a Cardinals hat. That alone was almost enough for me to watch the movie, which otherwise holds a score of 51% on Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't watch it, but I almost did. 
Is there a piece of media you've consumed solely for the Cardinals connection? Or what is your favorite movie show song that is at least somewhat Cardinals adjacent? Yes, and thank you uh, very much to friend of the pod, Alex Chrisafuli, for this question. He did include a screenshot of Vince Vaughn in this Cardinals hat, and it is weird looking. He's wearing like a Western shirt buttoned all the way to the top. Um, it, uh, but uh, I haven't seen Arkansas either, so I can't speak to the quality of it. Um, but yeah, you know, the, it's funny this question comes to because I, I very recently consumed a piece of media like this. Um, and, you know, last season, I think we mentioned uh, uh, Chris Muller, who uh, is, is another friend of the pod. He hasn't been on here ever, although I think we should have him on sometime then. He's a local guy here in Des Moines who wrote a really great book called The St. Louis Baseball Mosaic that I've quite enjoyed. Every cha- I know I mentioned it last year, but uh, again, it's, you know, every chapter kind of is about some element of, of St. Louis baseball culture, but it really kind of goes in a lot of directions, each chapter. And so in particular, he has a chapter um, that's uh, kind of ostensibly about the Gas House Gang and uh, um, Ernie Rosati, ultimately, who was the center fielder. But it's also ends up, what I learned through this was that uh, uh, Buster Keaton, uh, uh, who you know, ran his own studio during kind of the height of his success in the silent era, everybody he employed had to go out and play baseball, like recreation time from work. And uh, he had uh, some former uh, big leaguers who kind of were involved with the studio that would play with them and everything. Um, Ernie Rosati was a guy, an LA uh, uh, kid who was working at his studio as a stunt person, but then was like actually pretty good at baseball. And so like some of these pros that were playing with him said like, you know, you actually could like play. So, you know, he started playing in, uh, you know, for like the Hollywood stars and some of those uh, West Coast teams uh, ultimately made his way to the Cardinals. Now, where I'm going with this is I also from this book learned that Orzadi appears in a movie called Death on the Diamond. Have you seen this movie, Ben? I have not. Uh, I had not until recently either. I had to order a, 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 a there was a DVD release of it you can get. Um, so Death on the Diamond is a 1936, I'm pretty sure, um, sort of like murder mystery comedy, but it's set around the St. Louis Cardinals. And basically, um, someone starts murdering players on the team. So, you know, players are just kind of, uh, you know, dropping left and right. And, uh, you know, the team's kind of trying to figure out who could be doing this and everything. Um, So uh, it's, you know, primarily, of course, actors in the film. But then a lot of times when they cut away to the play on the field, those are actual major leaguers playing, apparently many Cardinals that are out there. And Orzadi is the one which kind of makes sense given his, you know, fact that he was a like stuntman and performed in films before he is the one Cardinal that has a little bit of a kind of like face moment in the film as well. So, uh, so that is an example of death on the diamond that um, I consumed solely for its Cardinals connection. Uh, ben, I'm, I'd, be, I'd love to know what kind of came to your mind when Alex threw this question out. Um, you know, I have not um, really, done that except for in in one instance and it was the uh the winning team and it's with ronald reagan playing grover cleveland alexander oh yeah that's right and i watched that when i was younger and it's not a good movie um but it's it's you know it's from the 50s and it's sort of a an interesting look at grover cleveland alexander um right but uh, but that was during the that was during the the code era, so you could not yeah. be as drunk on screen as he was in real life. Exactly. Any any book you can find that kind of talks about um, him as a player and looks at him as a player with anecdotes and reporting and everything uh, is almost sure to be better. Um, that's about the only one uh, that that really came to mind uh, for me. You know, outside of like the heat is on the VHS, uh, you know, from the eighties, uh, uh, for the, to commemorate the Cardinal season, those types of things, but those don't really count. I feel like because they're, yeah, you know, they're, they're official Cardinals authorized propaganda. We're, we're talking about right. <laughs> more, uh, you know, just kind of organic St. Louis Cardinals placement. Um, I will say, uh, 
you know, Nelly being from St. Louis uh, before I, yes. I heard country grammar made me want to hear country grammar. And then, but then of course it, that all of that fell away because that song is so incredible. It's just like, you know, I don't care where he's from. Like, I'm right. glad he's from St. Louis and is a Cardinals fan because Cardinals nation can claim him. But like, uh, you know, that certainly piqued my interest, but you know, the, the, that's kind of, I, I, I even struggled Ben to think of, uh, a, a piece of media where that would, where this would have been the case for me, because the reason mm. is because uh, the elitists on the coast don't want uh, wholesome Midwestern teams like the St. Louis Cardinals in their <laughs> uh, entertainment. Um, I, I'm 100% sure. Well, uh, you know, well, it's a lot, it's a lot cheaper to film out there. So, um, and that's why most of the baseball action in death on the diamond was filmed at uh, Wrigley field in Los Angeles, though there is some that was shot at sportsman's park. Um, <laughs> you know, the one other thing, Ben, that I thought of just again, with it, thinking about something that's just very tangentially Cardinals related. Um, I, uh, I really enjoy like songs about baseball and actually uh, Alex and I were able to see the baseball project last season, which is fantastic. Love, love all their songs and, you know, kind of a lot of those things. So, you know, I have some like playlists of baseball music um, on at least one of those playlists. I do have uh, the song Molina by CCR, um, which, uh, you know, the, the chorus is Molina. They just kind of say that over and over. The song, of course, has nothing to do with Yadier Molina baseball puerto rico um it's it's like about a, a a woman who's like kind of reckless basically but um you know i can still kind of vibe on that in the midst of a baseball soundtrack because of course it gets me uh, me thinking about uh, yadi and, and his brothers uh yeah and and along those lines uh you know the the molina records music videos that yadi would put out when he had a mambatronics yeah. production studio uh, I listened to those solely because they were on Molina records. Um, yes. And there's the amazing video where like John Jay and Daniel Descalso are like lip singing or lip, lip syncing. And, uh, and Descalso forever endeared himself to me because he clearly didn't even know the words and he was just here mm -hmm. because yeah, Molina asked him to. Um, yes. And, uh, I really enjoyed that music video because there was also a Molina records baseball Jersey uh, that I've tried to find on the internet for sale, but I, I've been unable uh, to do so in the years since. Um, so. <laughs> and that's, and that, and that's saying something because you have an extensive uh, uh, vintage t-shirt collection that I'm aware of. So if, if you can't yeah. find it, it must be really hard to find. Yes. And um, I, my, uh, my wife has also uh, added to it. I, I now have a basketball Jersey for Yadier Molina's basketball team. Um, <laughs> that is a part of my collection. So um, she, she's a keeper, Ben. Yes. Yes, she is. And so, uh, you know, so the Molina records, which just kind of quietly went away, as far as I know, um, was was something that solely for the St. Louis Cardinals connection. Uh, I, I checked that out. Um, and I suppose yeah. we could include Victor Scott, the second's hip hop uh, music. Um he did an interview with David Larilla on Fangraphs, folks. If you want to Google that, search it out. He talks about uh, his he he does some uh, rapping and and uh, and a little bit of music on the side with one of his uh, longtime friends. And I did give that a listen just to see what the kids sound like uh, nowadays um, on the musical front. And so I, but that's probably about the extent of it. And 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 how, how would you evaluate it? And please use a 10-point scale with decimal points like your pitchfork. No. Um, I actually texted it to my friend, Mark, who used to write for Pitchfork. Um, yep. yeah. <laughs> I should have had him uh, give us it. I, you know, I, I think it's, it's pretty good, but it's about what you would expect from, uh, you know, athlete music. Um, right. Where it's so 6.3 is what you're saying. Yeah, like right in there. Like it's, gotcha. you know, it's not embarrassing, or at least I don't think it's embarrassing. Um, and, but it's not like, oh, this is, you know, there's really something here, you know, it's, and, and why would there be? He spends so much time focused on baseball. It, it's no surprise to me that like his music's not transcendent, you know, he's not yes. focused. 
So it's very rare to be successful as both an entertainer and an athlete like Ernie Orsani. See how I brought that full circle? <laughs> well done. You're exactly right. So All right. Uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that question. I had never heard of Arkansas, the movie before, and I thought that Vince Vaughn was dead. So um, I appreciated that question from Alex. I mean, I'm tempted to take a shot at Arkansas here, but we live in Iowa, which is, you know, uh, equally susceptible to such shots. So I, I will not take a shot at the state nor the film until I see it. Maybe maybe by our next show, Ben, you and I can check out Arkansas and we can offer a, a full review and an Arkansas emergency pod. Yes, yes. We, we can do it on our recommendation, whether or not we recommend it. Right. Well, um, I think we've kind of reached the end here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, we appreciate everyone. Yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we will be with you again soon on the next Conrad Knowles Off. Go Conrad!